Hey everyone, my guest today is Carla McLaren, and she is the author of, I believe, at least 11 books, uh, including The Language of Emotions, The Power of Emotions at Work, and The Art of Empathy. Uh, you're also a developer of Empathy Academy as well. Um, Carla, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Asad. It's great to be here. Uh, so as we were ch- chatting right before the podcast, you know, big, big fan of your work. And I love to be start with, you know, reading your work. I got the sense that you've had a very unique journey coming to some of the uh, work you've published. And yeah. maybe you could speak to like what your journey was, um, how it started and how you got to the place where you uh, wanted to understand emotions. Well, For me, the journey started in a kind of a sad place, which was that I uh, experienced childhood assault um, when I was very little. And as it is with many people who are assaulted when they're little, they learn how to read people, right? Because <laughs> you sort of have to. Um, and so I became very open to, to figuring out what people wanted and needed and whether they were going to be dangerous that day or whatever. But because I didn't know how I turned on that level of sensitivity, I didn't know how to turn it off. So it ended up being, you know, a further difficulty uh, because now I had this, you know, ongoing issue of being injured. And then also this ongoing issue of not being able to like have quiet in my own soul. So learning how to work with the emotions and empathy was really a way to kind of save my life because you know, the emotions that I would pick up and the emotions that I was feeling were so intense. It was so like overwhelming that it felt like another problem. And what I found that actually, no, that wasn't the problem. The emotions were trying to come and help me deal with the problem. So that was sort of where the beginning of understanding how and why emotions do what they do was because I was in the deep ocean with them. It wasn't sort of standing on the side going, I'd like to, I'd like to study emotions. That would be fun. <laughs> it was more like, what are these? So, yeah. And then my understanding is uh, at some point in the, uh, uh, in maybe your young adult, you moved to a more spiritual path. Yeah. And I got the impression that there were things you learned, but then there were also things that made you ultimately turn away from that. Yeah. When I was little, they called me all sorts of things, including hyperactive. And, you know, I was just a little live wire of a kid. And my mom, you know, in, in her own journey, found yoga, she was very ill. And she found yoga and vegetarianism. And this helped her at that time. And that was sort of the gateway drug into the, the entire kind of new age of the 1970s and 1980s. And so in that world, my extreme sensitivity got me called out as a psychic, right? So I was a psychic sensitive child. I was like, well, I'm taking that instead of you know, hyperactive and annoying, I'll be this. So it was very, um, it was very helpful. And when you can read emotions and s- social behaviors, and you can read people in the way that I could, it looks psychic. It did. So it wasn't as if people were lying to themselves or to me, it looked as if I knew things that were not knowable. And basically, what I realized over 
many years, and I did start my writing career as a self-identified empath. Uh, I was one of the two talking about what it is to be an empath at that time and sort of started the whole conversation outside of Star Trek, which is where empaths come from. (laughs) I'm going to ask you about that. Star Trek is empath town. Um, But I went along in that career and wrote a number of books and, and, you know, toured and did all sorts of things and began to understand that whatever else is going on, empathy is not a psychic skill. And being an empath is nothing special that you might say that there's, you know, people who have other psychic skills, but being able to read emotions is not a psychic skill. It is something that we share with many animals. And it's something that basically is, uh, we can't sort of be alive and functional without being empathic. So i stepped back from that but it was with a kind of protracted horror because I was like what did I do what did I write what did I say where did I lead people because if you've been in new age spirituality and that's any spirituality that's an offshoot of the main three religions um and westernized so westernized yoga not yoga um offshoot Christianity, not the old school stuff, you know, and anything where people are trying to do something new is the new age. And my area was auras and chakras and dead people talking to you, Um, which, you know, that's fun. But what I realized as people who were uh, like me, uh, assaulted in childhood coming into the new age through my book, And there are no checks and balances anywhere in the new age or alternative medicine, none whatsoever. So I was bringing people in to a place that wasn't safe for them. And I, you know, it was horror when I realized what I had done. So I closed down my whole career and closed down my website, uh, took all the books I could out of print, just sort of went wow, I did wrong. That was wrong what I did. And I went back to school and got my degrees in sociology and social science and kind of understood what I had experienced. Um, And then came back or was invited back by one of my publishers to rewrite a book from where I, Hmm. what I know now, which is the language of emotions. Yeah. And um, I want to sort of set us out to talk set you up to talk about the four element model and what the Beatles and Star Trek have to do with it. Uh, but before that, I think uh, there's some, there's one insight, I think, from this journey that you talk about in your books that I want to flesh out a little bit, which is um, there is a spiritual intelligence that's very valuable, but in a lot of cultures, communities, there, and tell me if I'm mischaracterizing it, um, there's a little bit of a bypassing of emotional intelligence as part of it. That you yeah. experienced. Let me say a little bit more about that as we go into the world of the model. Well, what I noticed as I was studying the emotions is that they are kind of at the bottom of every every model you can find. The emotions are sort of like, yeah, we don't care about those. So you have intellectual world, which would be the airy intellect in the four element model. And there's very much a looking down on emotions as the opposite of logic. You have the spiritual world, which in most cases looks down on the intellect and the body and the emotions. It takes the emotions out in the backyard for a special kind of, you know, uh, exiling. And um, what I found in those communities 
in both the you know intellectual air only communities and the the fiery spirituality fire only communities was emotions were really in the shadow they were really unwanted and unloved and even hated and i watched what that did to these people i watched what it did to people to deny an you know an an aspect of their basic humanity and what happened to those communities, which was always bad. <laughs> so uh, I didn't find, I don't find many spiritual or religious practices or, or approaches that are emotion welcoming. I think Taoism is in some ways. Sufism has to be because Rumi, right? Rumi was the, the king of all emotions. Rumi could write emotions beautifully. Um, and Hafiz, uh, those two, those two understood emotions. So they were both Sufi. Maybe there's something in Sufism that's like, have your emotions and understand them in the way a poet does. Uh, but in terms of other forms, I just, I've looked everywhere. I was like, where's, where's the spirituality and religion that will allow emotions to be themselves and there really isn't because many of them are transcendent which means you're transcending above the body the mind the emotions you're getting out of here before we proceed if you could just give listeners like a overview of the four element model you know for people who maybe this is the first time they're hearing about it this four element model is not scientific okay this is not science this is poetry and mythology but basically it is the four elements in Western cosmologies are earth is the body and the earthy world. Water is the emotions and the world of art and movement. Uh, air is the intellect, uh, the mind, and fire is the spirit or vision for people who don't have a spiritual uh, belief system. So earth, air, water, and fire work together um, in the way they do on earth right? If you have a plant, you need earth, you need the air, you need the warmth of the soil, you need the water to help the plant live. And so these aren't separable, right? But in human psyches, sometimes they've become separated. Uh, and you need all of them, you need all four. Um, and when all four come together, in some cosmologies, there's something called the fifth element that comes out of the middle. And the fifth element, uh, we have the word quintessential. Uh, quint meaning five, essence. Quintessential means the, the, the true essence of a thing, the, the perfect essence of a thing. And it, it's coming from that fifth element. Um, there's that movie, The Fifth Element by Luc Besson. That's it too. <laughs> so we have this sense of, of four becoming five in a lot of places, but it's sort of hidden from us. And you make the diagnosis that in most of Western culture, there's a big imbalance uh, in the four elements. Could you talk a little bit about what kinds of imbalances you've, you've just seen? Yeah, yeah. I spoke about the, the fire-only spirituality, which is where we're just trying to get away from earth, air, and water. But I also have been in intellectual circles like the... Um, Oh, the new atheist and, and skeptical communities where it's very air only. They don't believe that there's such a thing as the fire element. It's all a lie or a hallucination. The emotions are just 
you can't trust them. They're the opposite of logic. And the body, well, it is a, it is a transport mechanism to take your brain places. <laughs> so you just have this brain walking around on this body. Maybe you feed it, maybe you don't. But, you know, I saw that though the skeptical community was saying, you know, we are better than the new age community, which is fire only and doesn't like the intellect. I was like, no, y'all are the same. You're just, you're just, you know, treating elements badly. It doesn't matter which elements you're treating badly. You're kind of shadow, shadow shadows of each other. Nobody wanted to hear that. So I got kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> We all agree. We hate Carla. <laughs> Finally, something you can agree on. That's uh, thank you. Um, and and uh, tell us what the Beatles or Star Trek have to do with this model. <laughs> the Beatles are a four element group. And so much has been written about the Beatles and continues to be written about the Beatles. But they had the four elements. Now, of course, the, the four men in the Beatles are not just one thing. But Ringo was earth. He held the beat. And Paul was fire. He was the leader. And George was air. He was the airy intellectual thinker. And, um, oh my gosh, John Paul, John was water. He was the deeply emotive person. And so you've had this four element group and what came out of it, the fifth element, the quintessence, was their music, which, uh, you know, so many people try to talk about what it is about the Beatles music that was so much. And you can get a lot of different answers about it, but it was also, there's that fifth element thing coming out of these four very different people. And none of the men could create on their own what they created together. They all did interesting things post Beatles, but nothing was as, I don't know, alluring as what they created together. There's also an implication in there that, well, this is rare in groups, but also very even rarer in individuals to have all four of them balanced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I talk about one, uh, one man who, Nainoa Thompson, who is, uh, uh, he is a Hawaiian, um, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the word, but he's a star navigator. And he went back to the ancient Hawaiian ways of um, wayfinding in the ocean. And the Hawaiians are Tahitians who came over to Hawaii and somehow found it, right? They somehow found it. And so there's a, a, a huge tradition of this wayfinding in the Hawaiian and Polynesian cultures. Um, and I tell a story in the book about Nainoa Thompson getting stuck in the doldrums and listening to all four elements of himself. He doesn't say that. He doesn't call it that. But I'm, I'm coming over the top of the story and telling him what it is. No. <laughs> but, but to understand, the reason I was talking about it in the book in that way is to give people some, some sense of what it would be like, what it would be like to, to rely on all four elements in everyday life and the the other one that i used was star trek because come on 
<laughs> the original Star Trek where Kirk was the fiery leader and Bones was the very emotional um, uh, water element and Spock was the intellectual air element and Scotty was the earth element of keeping everything running, keeping the ship going. And the fifth element was the Enterprise, right? It was all of those people and everyone else, Uhura and Chekhov and Sulu and everybody else was needed to make that ship its own kind of entity. Great, yeah. Um, and I, I'd love to go deeper into that water element piece. And, you know, in your book, you talk about a range of emotions and you also talk about the gifts of each emotion. Mm -hmm. And what I'd like to do is maybe list a few emotions and maybe you can share a little bit about the gifts. But before that, I, you draw a distinction between expression, re repression, and channeling of emotions. Yes. Can you share how you think about that distinction? And then we can go into some of the emotions. What I notice with emotions is that many people have two options. They either explode with the emotion or they repress it and pretend that it didn't happen or, you know, actually suppress it back where it came from. But because I see emotions as aspects of cognition, and as like a sense, uh, <clears throat> the sociologist Arlie Hoke Schild calls emotions our sense and probably most our most important one, which is they're trying to tell us what's going on. If we explode out with emotions, say anger, we explode out with it. Well, we know something, but now we have maybe injured another person. That's probably not what anger came to tell us. <laughs> but if anger comes to tell us something specific and we don't know how to use anger, we don't know what to do with it. Well, thank goodness we're not exploding with it, but our other options to repress it. And so whatever that sense, whatever that aspect of cognition, whatever that messenger was trying to do is now suppressed. And so in so doing, we become less aware. We become less functional. The same is when we, you know, throw our emotions at other people, we lose that sense of awareness that was wanting to come forward. So I created a process called channeling. And I don't mean like channeling dead people. I mean, channeling as the word channel, which means to, to channel something in the direction that it was meaning to go. So if an emotion like anger comes to tell me something specific, channeling helps me work with the specific message that I'm getting. With, with anger, the, it's always about boundaries. So someone steps across a boundary of mine and I don't have a practice, I'll repress it, suppress it. And that relationship is going to falter because now the person doesn't even know what they did. They have no idea. And the next time they're going to do it again and we're going to get in this really troubling place. So let's say that this boundary gets crossed, anger comes to tell me, and then I just express all over the person. I just go after them. Well, now I've broken their boundaries. I've broken mine the relationship is going to be damaged. And so I, the, you know, both choices are pretty terrible. If you only had two. In the, the channeling choice, I can understand a boundary has been crossed. And there's questions that I created for all of the emotions to help 
move into the, the way that emotion is trying to work and the, the way that it is trying to help. So the questions for anger is what do I value and what must be protected and restored? And so whoever it is comes and crosses my boundary. I think, what do I value? I value my privacy. I value whatever, you know, whatever it is. I value my money. I value and what needs to be protected and restored. Well, both my boundary, but also this person. So anger is not in its heart a, a violent emotion, but the way that we've learned to use it, we've turned it into violence. Uh, anger is actually deeply relational. And you can't really have a healthy relationship without healthy anger present, which is why so many people don't have very healthy relationships, right? What I found interesting was your characterization that anger, you said it's an honorable sentry, right? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's also looking at what needs to be protected in yourself, but also the other person, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what do I value? I think in, in the early days we had the questions for anger is what needs to be protected, what needs to be restored. But what we noticed is that people only did the protecting and they didn't even remember that there was a restore question. They didn't even have a, what do you mean restored? I just went and tore them a new one. <laughs> What can I restore? I'm like, oops. We realized that there's just so much violence in our anger responses that we needed to put that values question out in front to get people to slow down a little bit and say what what's really what's really important here, rather than just I've been offended against and I'm going to be a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually like to go a little deeper on this uh, emotion of anger because I think it's mm-hmm. such a probably complex and scary emotion for a lot of people, right? Um, yeah. One thing that I've been... reflecting on, or I think something that makes the challenge of anger a little more complex is we live in hierarchical societies, right? And uh, let's say I'm speaking to a customer service rep for my phone bill, right? Now, maybe I'm overcharged and I get angry about that, right? There's a weird thing where the customer service person didn't actually make the policy, right? There's a hierarchical element that yeah. maybe, it's a, maybe it's a reflection of modern society, but, but, but how would you recommend people channel their anger in a, in, a, in a situation like that? I had that situation with PayPal and um, they're, they're on my list, of things, but you know that nobody that I'm going to talk to at PayPal has any power, Hmm. right? And what had changed there was their shipping process. And it was just, it was a five alarm fire of chaos, unbelievably bad transition to a new shipping. And the shipping company wouldn't answer me. And so I went to PayPal and I was like, you decided to get in bed with this you decided, sorry, to, to make a relationship with the shipping company and you need to take responsibility for it, right? But I didn't say that to the person. I continually said, PayPal did this. This is what's happening to my business. This is what's happening here, right? I needed to tell somebody, right? I know it's not you personally, right? And like continuing to, to respect that other person's humanity, and knowing that they probably are not being treated very well. Come on, it's PayPal. But, um, um, and then they were able to understand and then kick it up. 
So I went up a number of manager levels by continuing to say, PayPal is, you know, instead of you people, but PayPal made this decision and you're working for PayPal. So what can you do for me? I was very angry. It was really, really bad. I mean, all my values <laughs> were challenged, but I didn't go after the people, the individual people, because they didn't have anything to do with it. Right. Um, but yeah, I got the runaround so much. And so I finally just went, these are the situations PayPal needs to take responsibility for this. And then finally it did go up. I did get my money back, some of it. And um, right. But, but being willing to stay with it, even though you know that the people you're talking to are not the power brokers, they're not the, and trying to get the, the situation, the, the seriousness of the situation across without destroying the other person is hard. But I mean, just remembering with anger, what do I value? I value workers. Okay, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, okay. The, the, the definition of value can actually be pretty encompassing mm-hmm. in that case. Yeah. yeah. Um, my other thought around anger was what, what, how do you channel it if it's around someone who is deceased or no longer in your life? There's a practice I have called conscious complaining, which is a way to tell the truth. A lot of people are very afraid of anger or most emotions. <laughs> and so a lot of times if we have an emotion that we need to work through and talk about, there's nobody to go to. So I created a, a private practice, a, a solitary practice called conscious complaining. And to be able to go and speak what you need to speak, even if the person is dead, um, and know that you're doing it and kind of, we create a sort of a ritual space around it, a sacred space around it. So you're not just blowing up at everybody, but it's so important to be able to say what you need to say in this private space. And we also have a partner practice uh, in the art of empathy where you can do conscious complaining with a partner and each person goes for three minutes and no Nobody has to fix anything, no solution, not even advice. Just listen and make a space for another person to have human emotions. <laughs> it's a revolution. <laughs> uh, it's cool. Uh, it's that was actually one of the things I was going to ask about. I think that's one of the practices that to me felt very the most challenging because I think I have a lot of uh, stigma against complaining. Yeah. Um, and... I think in the practice, you make a distinction between just complaining and conscious complaining. Maybe just like flesh out what the difference is. One of the things that I talk about ritual is ritual is a place where magic can happen regardless of whether you have spiritual beliefs or not. But ritual is a, a, a sacred space and creating a sacred space around con- complaining means that you realize it is not something that most people can handle in the everyday world right? Most people do unconscious complaining. There's no ritual aspect to it. You pick up the phone and they just go. And you're like, uh, I guess I need to do the dishes now because I'm not going to get a word in it twice. You know, <laughs> that's, that's my life. Um, and so I created it because complaining is so important and it's also forbidden, right? It's forbidden to complain. Um, so 
there is like a permission in conscious complaining to just tell it like it is. And a lot of times people will start, I, I call it conscious complaining, but that's kind of a cheat because a lot of people will start with anger and crankiness and grumpiness. And if they're allowed to just speak it without anybody you know, coming in and trying to change them in any way, they will usually get to emotions like sadness or grief. So they may start as like, I can't stand PayPal because this and that. And then where I got to with conscious complaining is because I'm letting down everybody who orders from me. Right. That, that was a whole different place than I'm just angry with PayPal. But it's like, what, why, what values are being broken? It's like my value as a, as a business person, as a person who's going to supply things on a timely manner. Um, and then the person was waiting at home for the thing that they paid for with their money. And it's not there. You know, it's like that, that was where we got to with conscious complaining. But if I had just stayed that level of angry with PayPal, um, I may never have learned what was actually going on or what my values were. So when I wrote to the PayPal customer service people, I shared that, hmm. right? So they got the whole emotional package. <laughs> They're like, I need a manager. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, continually with talking about myself, it's like, this is, you know, this is what is happening to my business right now because of this. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love the deep dive we did on anger. I would love to maybe spend a little time just on some of the other emotions that I feel like, um, you know, people might think of as like dirty emotions or like, you know, not, yeah. you know, um, so yeah. uh, I, I love to maybe if you, maybe let's start with shame and you can yeah. say a little bit about the gifts of shame and we can go from there. Shame is a beautiful emotion that most of us have been taught to hate with a white hot heat of a thousand suns. But what shame's job is, is to help you live up to the morals and agreements that you've made. And so a lot of people want to get rid of shame, but if you do, then you would be shameless, which is not a good thing to be. The work with shame is to understand what morals and agreements you have and where did they come from? And, and do you agree with them now? Um, Sarah Alexander, who is one of my colleagues, calls shame the loyal assistant because it does what you asked it to, even if you didn't remember asking. So shame upholds your morals, your ethics. And what about if your morals and ethics include, I should floss. So you floss and your shame's like, nicely done. I have nothing to say to you. Um, or if you forget to floss, your shame might wake you up at 2 a.m. and said, excuse me, did you floss? <laughs> right? But there's not going to be any kind of horror going on in there. What about if one of the values and ethics that you picked up is, no one will ever love you until you're absolutely perfect. And so someone comes to love you. Some poor schlub comes to love you. <laughs> it's like they had no idea. Um, your shame is going to go on a bender. Your shame is going to go banana crackers. It's going to go off the rails. Because the, that message that you picked up about never being lovable is grotesque. Shame isn't grotesque. Not when it, you're talking about flossing. 
shame is the loyal assistant. And so the work with shame is to figure out where you pick that thing up, whether you agree with it now, whether it works for you now. And if it doesn't, we have a practice called burning contracts, which is for shame. Uh, it's for other emotions too, but it's primarily for shame. And it's a way to, I guess, individuate, not I guess, it's a way to individuate, to make sure that your morals and ethics and the structure of your soul is what you choose and not what has been chosen for you by media. Like a lot of us have body shame based on false media you know, pictures of people who have been airbrushed and, and have, you know, I, I just watched a movie with Tatum Channing and they were talking about it and people were saying, what did you like most at the craft table? And because he had to have his shirt off, he wasn't eating during the shoot. He was not eating food so that we could see his musculature. Um, and I was like, that is disgusting. Uh, I hope you had a sandwich after, <laughs> right? But we look at our bodies and we wonder like, why are my muscles not showing like Channing Tatum's? It's because you ate a sandwich. That's why. <laughs> it's because that's not normal. So a lot of us have body shame based on people doing things that are inhum inhuman and inhumane to their bodies so that they can present a false body to us, right? So understanding that we can go, I have lots of empathy for Channing and I do not want to do that to myself in order to have my muscle show in that way, right? Um, to choose my own. So what is my value about my body? I will feed myself well, I will exercise well, I will sleep well, I will take good care of myself. Those are my values. And as soon as I step away from that, I want my shame to go, excuse me, <laughs> hey, lady, lady, <laughs> what are you doing right now? Do you really need that whole cake? And I'm like, oh, dang it. Okay, no, <laughs> not the whole cake. <laughs> you said you were going for a bike ride. Oh, yeah, I did. Um, you know, shame can be a little bit annoying if, if you've got a value that maybe is too hard to live up to. Like we've all done that, you know, um, what are they? New year's resolutions. Most of them are complete waste of time. <laughs> they're, they're like aspirational. They are not real life. And so, yeah, that's the work with shame is continually see, is this livable? Is this appropriate to me right now? Is this up to date? If not, it goes and we find something better. Um, speak a little bit about sadness and fear as well. Sadness is a beautiful emotion that helps us let go of things that aren't working anyway. And so sadness comes up and helps us drop off things that are pretty much dragging at us anyway. Sadness does not come to take things that are valuable. It comes to help us let go of what's no longer valuable, even if it was before. And so the work with sadness when it comes up is to ask what must be released because something, something called sadness forward. And so I call sadness the, the all purpose healing balm of the soul because so many of us don't make time to let go. We're just go, 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 get, 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 earn, 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 and buy more stuff. And letting go is such a crucial part of sort of every day. Most most relaxing meditative practices or prayer are grounding. They're naturally sadness 
they use sadness, even though nobody would say they do that anything that allows you to let go of tension or let go of the, the troubles of the day is a sadness practice. And so um, we love, we love sadness and it doesn't get used uh, very often. There's also a gender um I want to say rule, there's a gender rule about sadness, which is that men are generally not allowed to be sad or to cry. They're not allowed to grieve. Whereas women are not allowed to have anger or express it. So we have, in cultures where that is true, we have men or male presenting people who have to hold this tough body, this tough unfed Channing Tatum body that you can see the muscles, but nobody's had sandwiches, right? And then in cultures where that's true, you have women or female presenting people having to have this softened, boundaryless behavior where they can't set boundaries, where they can't speak up, where they can't say what is important to them, not out loud. Uh, or with men who use sadness and grief we have a name for them it rhymes with wussy and with women who utilize anger we have a name for them it rhymes with witch like we actually have a gender split in those two emotions and that's another thing where shame may come out and say is that what we want anymore is that one of our values I'm like, no, that's not our value. So I'm a woman. I'm going to be angry. Okay. <laughs> and my shame is like, fine. You said that was okay. <laughs> and then fear is a wonderful emotion that is our instincts and intuition about the present moment. It helps us orient ourselves and figure out what's going on around us. So if you're very kind of aware and intuitive person, you're working very well with fear. Um, fear is usually confused with Anxiety, which is an emotion that helps us look toward the future and prepare to get things done, do our tasks, make our plans, organize, hit our deadlines. Fear and anxiety can work together, but they're not the same emotion. And then there's panic, which most people, when they talk about fear, they're actually talking about panic, which is the emotion that comes forward when we're in danger. So if we're using our fear about the present moment, we're just hanging out and all of a sudden something comes at us, <clears throat> we don't know what it is. Panic should come because it could be life-threatening and panic gives us the fight, flee, freeze, or flock to safety options. So a lot of times when people say no fear, what they're saying is I don't like panic, but if it was no fear, like they wouldn't be functional. Like they would just walk into walls because they didn't know what was happening. <laughs> but <clears throat> notice how much we've been taught to hate fear. So, so much so that we don't even know what it is. We don't know the difference between fear and anxiety and panic, or that these are different emotions with different practices. Yeah. Um, this is great. Um, and I want to transition to blog post you wrote around forgiveness and anger now that we have this like foundation and <laughs> and 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 um tell us why forgiveness can sometimes be a deceptive approach especially if you haven't worked through your anger as a as a survivor of many traumas people were really on me to forgive 
people really like you need to forgive or you won't be well you know you just need to forgive you have to let go of that anger but I'm a female so they were also doing that kind of gender training on me but I thought why are people so fired up about this and I started looking at forgiveness and I looked it up in the dictionary because I didn't feel like forgiving that's not what felt right at that time and it said um Um, a willingness to show mercy. And I was like, mercy, hold on. And I went and looked up mercy. And mercy is the, the decision not to harm, though you could. And I was like, what in the, huh? Because my picture of forgiveness was that it was like a powerless head bowing. Oh, okay. I know you didn't mean to hurt me. Do you know what I mean? It's like the person has no responsibility whatsoever. And that's not where I wanted to go with the anger that I was feeling. And, but looking at it as I had the strength to injure that person if I felt like it, but the mercy to not do it. And that sent me on a whole nother path of what is forgiveness then? Because I needed to retrieve all of the power and strength that I, thought I lost in those early assaults, right? I didn't have it. So my forgiveness would have been a pointless gesture that had no meaning because I didn't have mercy because I didn't have the strength to injure someone and decide not to. I didn't have choices. So when you say to someone whose anger hasn't returned and whose sense of strength hasn't returned, you need to forgive, what you're doing is you're injuring them further, because now they're in a position of giving more of their power over that they don't even know they have to this person who's injured them or to the situation that has injured them. And they haven't achieved the healing of retrieving themselves. So once I'm retrieved and I have all my power back and I have all my strength back and I have capacity for violence, which I choose not to use, then forgiveness is like, boom, easy, done. Right? I don't have to do anything because I can't be hurt in that way anymore. I survived it. I survived it and I grew past it and I became a good person regardless. Right? Yeah. Elaborate on the role that anger plays in that because that's a counterintuitive, like, yeah, way, like direction to proceed, you know? Yeah. Well, for many people who are assaulted or, or victims of crime or, there's a sense that their boundaries are gone, that they've been violated. And for me, that was actually physically true, right? And I didn't have boundaries. That was one of the reasons I also started to read people. So I didn't have boundaries. Your emotion, my emotion, I wasn't quite sure which was which. I could feel everything in the room. I didn't have boundaries. Anger is all about boundaries. It is what are my values? Who am I? What needs to be protected and restored? It was me that did. So I needed to bring my anger back. Now I had anger. I had extreme rage. Most of the time when I was a kid, I was a freaking handful. I was a, I was a, um, I was a wild child. And looking back now, I can see that anger, that rage was trying to make emergency boundaries and get the people, people the heck away from me. Right. Because I was so hypersensitive that people were actually irritants in my own body. So that rage was me trying to 
you know, what, in whatever way I could create boundaries. So I had it, but it was a violent kind of primal anger that I couldn't control. And so learning how to work with that anger, with that rage was a big part. And that's where a lot of conscious complaining comes from because there's nobody in the world who could listen to the amount of rage that I could produce. Right? It had to be a ritual practice. And so then I could hear my soul in the, in the things I was speaking and find my way back home. Then I could forgive. I want to talk a little bit about happiness. Um, you know, the, found, the founding fathers of the United States, you know, one of the things they say is like, the pursuit of happiness is your inalienable right. What? I, I, get, I, I get the sense that you're, you're like, you're, you're, you're skeptical of that claim, right? What? Talk a little bit about that. Who puts that in a government document? I mean, have you met the United States? It's not a happy place. Um, but one of the questions I had is, where are you going? What are you pursuing? Happiness lives inside you. It's a human emotion. So why are you chasing after? What's going on? Um, and I think one of my friends who is a historian kind of took me aside and said that they weren't talking about that. They were talking about you being able to, to follow your own path and pursue your own dreams in the way that people in Europe and England especially couldn't really do, right? Because of the caste system because of the monarchy, because of the ways that the peasantry was kind of inculcated into the system. So you didn't have choices. And that's what they were talking about. But I do think that a pursuit of happiness is sort of like, I don't know, I was remembering, I just had this thing. I was remembering um, my husband and I lived in a place where it snowed. And so we had to have firewood. So we would cut the wood, then we would split it, then we would bring it into the house, then we would burn it, then we would clean out the stove. And then one day the dogs were watching us do this. The dogs are just like, you know, just watching us walk back and forth. And you can see in their eyes, like, why are they doing this? this isn't a thing, right? It made that's what I felt like when I heard pursuit of happiness. I was like the dogs going, but where are they going? Because happiness is in your body. <laughs> You're doing a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's also this idea that it, you know, emotions are things in motion. Right? It's 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 a bit of a flow you can't really control. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big a big picture about emotions is you should control them. You should get over them. You should, there's a, I wrote a blog post. What was it? Um, maybe it wasn't. We can't talk. We can't talk if you're emotional. I was like, then we can never talk because I will always be emotional. It's a part of cognition. It's a part of how life works. But a lot of people think that when, if you can get rational, um, then you won't have to deal with those irrational emotions. And when people are being rational, they're using their emotions. They just don't know it, right? Because emotions have been so um, demonized that we just don't even know that they're there. Um, I know we have a few minutes left. I want to end with um, something else you said that was a little counterintuitive, which is you, in your 
in your books you actually do not classify love as an emotion even in, in in pop culture that's like sort of the like the highest emotion you could aspire to yeah. um tell us a little bit about why you came to that conclusion when i felt into love i didn't feel the kinds of things that i feel from emotion which is that emotions move very quickly they respond to an issue then they step back they're very um they're very very active they're very changeable and so sometimes it'll be anger sometimes it'll be panic sometimes it'll be fear or sadness or happiness it's like a kaleidoscopic movement of different aspects of cognition for me love is sort of a deathless promise that remains throughout life and beyond death um the, it's like a it's like a, a a river that flows under the world whereas emotions are more like bouncing up and down and doing what they do love is like this this <clears throat> this baseline under the song and i can feel angry at someone i love i can feel frightened of someone i love it's not going to change the love but i learned how to love from animals not people when i was little and everything was just too much in human culture i went hung out with animals so i learned how to love from them and they don't fall in love and fall out of love right the 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 kind of love that feels like an emotion i would call it infatuation where you fall in love oh my gosh the person is so wonderful like when you're a teenager or something oh my gosh and then they do something human and you're like oh i hate them i was like well that was never love that was something else um that love for me love is eternal and emotions are more um momentary uh, i think it's a great place to end um so for people listening i think we touched on maybe the tip of the iceberg of your work I, you know I, i recommend people you know check out your books where can people find out more about you and your work there's two places one is empathyacademy.org where people can take courses online courses based on this work and the other is my website carlamclaren.com where there are so many free things because i really want people to be able to work with their emotions and um and just experience the genius that's in their emotions. 